Okay, pop quiz. I love starting with pop quizzes. What book are we studying? Hey, that was very, very nice. So, obviously, we'll start this morning in Genesis. Uh, you don't have to turn your Bibles to Genesis. I want to bring up, as we start, a very familiar account. And I really want you to understand this morning that what we're about to talk about in Genesis is an actual account of a historical event. Um, it is in story form, but it's something that actually happened. Who created the heavens and the earth? Okay, now, yeah, I'm not tricking y'all this morning at all. I promise. Nothing sneaky. God created the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day, He created man, correct? Is that right? It is right, okay? He caused a deep sleep to fall on man, and He pulled a rib out of the man, and out of that rib He fashioned a woman. And we have Adam and Eve, who is the mother and who are the mother and father of every single member of the human race. So we all descend from Adam and Eve. Now, they had a pretty sweet setup, okay? Everything in the world was perfect. God had created it, and after He created them, He said everything was very good. And the Scripture says that God walked with them in the cool of the day. And there in the Garden of Eden, an actual place, these two actual people communed with God in perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect happiness. And it would appear as if God's will was being accomplished. But something happened, didn't it? Sin happened. Man and woman, woman and man, chose to sin. They chose to do the one thing God told them not to do, which was what? You don't have to answer. That's a rhetorical question. They chose to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, please know this is a historical account. This happened in a real place with real people eating real fruit. God had said, you can eat of any tree of the garden, you can eat anything in the field, any plant, just don't eat from this one tree. Well, what happened? Here comes a slithering snake or a walking snake. I don't know what's really going on there exactly. And he said something to the woman. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat this? And she's like, yeah. God said that. He said, we'll not even touch it because if we do, we die. And the serpent said, you won't die if you do that. God knows that in the day that you eat of this tree, you'll be like Him and you'll know good from evil. And it says that the woman looked and the fruit looked good, looked good to her eyes. In her head, it made sense that this would work. In her heart, it felt right. And she took it, and she ate it. And then the Scripture says that she took and she gave it to her husband who was there with her, who obviously is watching this happen. And he took it, and he ate it. And sin entered the human race, and along with sin, death, destruction, sickness, illness, bad people, bad morals, everything bad that you can imagine came into the world through this one act. And it would seem as if to me, on the surface, that God's will had been wrecked. That what God wanted had been destroyed with one little bite of fruit. Communion with God, gone. God banished them from the garden. He said, now all the days of your life, you're going to have to work like a dog to eat. Woman, in childbirth, you're going to have pain. Serpents, you're going to crawl on your belly. And God did not bless them, but God instead cursed them. And it's tragic. It's sad. What happened to God's will in the garden. 
Why don't you think about that as we get started today in Romans. Romans 3 is where we'll be today. And I do want you to keep in mind that we are still in our first section of our outline of Romans. Point 1, which is sin, the need for being right with God. I'm going to ask you a straight question here. How many of you are pretty familiar with the concept now that sin is pretty bad? How many of you are familiar with the concept that we are all bound up under sin? The pagan, the religious, the moral, the Jew. We're all bound up under sin because of that initial act that Adam and Eve committed, that they chose to do when they transgressed the will of God. I hope that you're on board with the fact that we ain't all we're cracked up to be. We ain't all that. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. We've got this week, we've got one more passage in this point of our outline, and praise God after that the, new, the good news comes. But I want you to feel the weight of this bad news. Paul didn't spend three chapters of the greatest book ever written possibly describing the plight of human sinfulness for no reason. If you don't realize that you are sinful and that you need a Savior and that you can't do it on your own, we have failed in bringing these three chapters to you. Because it's bad, guys. It's bad. But we're sin-abounded. We'll get to that later. Let's read. <clears throat> we're going to read Romans 3, 1 through 8. And then we'll get into what we're going to look at today. If you would stand with me as we read the Word together. <coughs> Excuse me. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let me pray. God, as we wrestle with and grapple with this text, I pray that we would do it in the power of Your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would know the power that You provide to both understand and do Your Word. May we know Your great might. May we know Your perfect plan. And may it reflect in our heads, in our hearts, in our hands, in our feet, in our mouths. And may the world see it and be glad in You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Quick recap of where we've been in Romans. Let me, you want to, look, 30,000 feet view, you ready? Hi, I'm Paul. I want to preach the gospel to you. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. The righteous man shall live by faith. You suck. That's where we've been so far in Romans. If you're a pagan, you're bad. If you're religious, you're bad. If you're a Jew, you're bad. If you're trusting in physical acts, if you're trusting in the law, you're bad. That's where we've been so far. You're like, that's not what he said. Yeah, that's pretty much what he said. <laughs> you have no hope whatsoever of being right with God outside of that thesis statement that Hamlet preached back in our second message, which is, the just shall live by faith. And that's where we've been. And last week we talked about circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant that em encapsulated that circumcision and what it means for the Jews to be circumcised. And Paul says, but if you're leaning on your circumcision, uh, bad news because that's not going to get it done. If you're leaning on your Jewishness or any sign of your Jewishness, that's not going to get it done. So then he starts out this passage with, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, 
We're used to Paul starting these statements with what word? We've said it a lot. It's a three-letter word, starts with F, ends with R. Thank you very much. We are used to hearing four. For this, for this, for this, for this. That one passage, that one week had four fours in it. This passage starts with what, though? Then. Hmm. Now, this is a different conjunction, right? Conjunction, junction, what is your function here? We're used to four, but here he says then. Now, what would that imply? It would refer back to what was just said, like a four, but it draws it into, and this is a result of that, if-then statements. Anybody familiar with if-then statements? Anybody ever dealing any MS-DOS? Huh? Yeah, uh, one per just Andrew. And Okay, okay, can I? All right, DOS. If 10 equals J, then what, you know, and I would like write my name, and like it would repeat over and over on the screen. That is geek talk right there, y'all. If you don't know what to talk about, don't worry about it. If then. So this then infers if this, then that. Okay, if Jason is hungry, then Jason should what? Eat. Maybe not, okay? But yes, if Jason is hungry, then he should eat. If Jason is thirsty, then he should drink. If Jason is tired, then he should rest. So here... We have to refer back to last week and see that Paul was asking about the reality that circumcision was of no use if it was not unified with faith. The outer signs of Jewishness did nothing to save people. So the question, Paul po the question that Paul poses in response to this truth about outward signs of Jewishness doing nothing to save people, then what advantage has the Jew? If circumcision and other outer signs of Jewishness don't prove to save people, then what advantage has the Jew? Seems like a proper question, right? And then it's followed up with, or what is the value of circumcision? If it doesn't save us, if it doesn't save you, then what? Then what? Now, I want you to ask yourself something. What do you think of when you think of the Jewish people? What value, what worth, what advantage do you think that a Jew has, period? Now, if you go back, we looked at Abraham last week and how that really was the beginning of the Jewish people. God reached out to a man, called him to himself. He said, I'll make you a great nation. That nation became Israel. That became the Jews. Okay, and let me just get that through to you. The nation of Israel became known as the Jewish people. Okay, some of you know that, some of you don't. I want you to get that in your head. God called one man, said, I'll make a great nation out of you. That nation was Israel. The people of Israel became known as the Jewish people. Now, what was their plight like? They went down into slavery, just like God said they would to Abraham. They spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves, building pyramids and such. God delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They wandered 40 years in a de 40, 40 years in a desert because they were disobedient to God and didn't do what He asked them to do. Then they came into the promised land. The nation was set up in the promised land that God had promised Abraham, this great kingdom that was in the crossroads of the world. You couldn't get from here to there without going to Israel pretty much. God put them in the very center of culture and said, I want you to be my people, so that when people pass through here, they say, I like these people, I like their God. That happened. Then the kingdom was set up. They were a theocracy for a while, which meant that God was their king. And things were going pretty good. And then about three generations after they came into the promised land, it says that they forgot God. And they started doing all kinds of evil. And it says that they would do evil. God would give them over to people who would rule over them. They'd cry out to God. God would deliver them. And they'd do evil. And then they'd cry out to God and God would deliver them. And then they'd do evil and went through this cycle. Finally, they called out and they said, We want a king. We want a king so that we can be like the other nations around us. God set up a kingdom. We had this unified kingdom of Israel under the headship of King Saul. King Saul gave way to King David. King David gave way to King Solomon. King Solomon gave way to King Jeroboam. Rehoboam, sorry. And then at that point, the nation of Israel split into two. You had the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Okay, this is, this is important. Stay with me. And then the northern kingdom of Israel got invaded by Assyria, and they took away the northern kingdom, which was ten tribes. You had one little, one and a half really, kind of tribes left in, in the south. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians overtook the southern kingdom, and there are no longer God's people in God's land. 
And then for a long time, long time, they lived under the oppression of foreign dictators. They had lived under the Egyptians. They had lived under the Assyrians. They had lived under the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. All these people were oppressive to God's people. And they labored and they struggled and they're saying, are we not God's people? We're in a foreign land. We can't worship in our temple anymore. All kinds of bad stuff. Now what's happened in, and I wouldn't say recent days, but in, say, the 20th century, what happened to the Jews? A guy named Hitler, right? Holocaust, millions and millions of Jews in gas chambers, burnt up. I mean, just, just trying. Hitler's goal was to wipe out the Jewish people. And it seems to me, like all through history, since there's been a Jewish people, there's been somebody that wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. And they have had a very hard existence. It's been bad. So, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Seems like it's a pretty rough plight. But through it all, they held their head up and said, we are God's people. God's chosen people, whether we're scattered all over the earth or whether we're in the promised land, we're God's people. Seems to me like they don't have many benefits. John MacArthur said at one point, Jewish slaves were priced at the same price as a horse simply because they were Jews. It is a miracle that there are Jewish people alive today. It's a miracle. And to me, the fact that there is a Jewish nation, that there is Israel, is proof of God and the Bible. You wonder if God's real? Look at the Jewish people. Look at the nation of Israel. The fact that they're still alive, that there's more than ten of them, is pretty much a miracle. But man, they've lived a hard life, so what advantage has the Jew? All this persecution, their Jewishness doesn't save them. To that question, especially after last week and especially after hearing all that stuff about the Jews, we might expect that the answer to that question is pretty bad, pretty wrong, right? But look at verse 2. What advantage has the Jew? What value of circumcision? What is this sentence here? Much in every way. <laughs> what? Now you just spent last week in our world telling them that their circumcision really wasn't worth anything if it wasn't united with faith. That physical circumcision meant nothing. And don't lean on it. Don't trust it. Don't trust in being a Jew. But here he says, what advantage has the Jew then? What value is circumcision? And the answer is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's verse 2. I would really expect Paul, after going through a litany of reasons why no one is right with God due to their sins and the problems of flesh, to say that Jews had no advantage. Wouldn't you? I mean, that's what I would expect him to say. We spent over an hour last week, sorry about that, um, talking about why circumcision in and of itself has no ability to save anyone. But here, Paul says the Jew and circumcision are advantageous and valuable much in every way. Now what? Why, Paul? Why Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit authored this through Paul. Well, to begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And some versions kind of mess up this translation. They say first, like, like Paul's going to give a list of reasons. We looked in Romans 9 last week. He will get to a list of reasons, but this is the only reason today. To begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, that is a pretty good reason, right? To see value. Paul is zeroing in here on something important if someone wants to be right with God. And that's something that he's zeroing in on is God's Word. Being outwardly Jewish, getting circumcised, and other Jewish distinctives may not amount to much in a quest to be right with God, but here... Paul says the fact that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God is a big advantage. God chose to reveal Himself to the world by giving a written revelation of Himself to who? To the Jewish people, to Israel. From His law given to the Jews on their journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land, all the way up to His pleas to, P-L-E-A-S, their pleas, His pleas, to and about His people through His prophets. God had spent 
a couple thousand years pretty much, showing Himself to the Jews and calling them to preserve this revelation through the written Word. God wrote a book, and He put that book in the Jewish library. So if you're going to know God, you've got to know what He says about Himself through the Jewish people. That's pretty important. So what advantage has the Jew? If the world was to know God, they would know Him through the Jews. This is truly advantageous and very, very, very valuable. Valuable. God's Word is of the utmost importance if anyone is to come to Him. And who had that Word? The Jews. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, things, things are about to get real here. So the Jews have the advantage of being God's covenant people, and they have what is really the invaluable. That means unable to value. It's worth more than we could value. They have the invaluable Word of God. So then... What if some of these Jews, what if some of God's covenant people were unfaithful? What if God calls a people to Himself and they, in return, are unfaithful? Then the next question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If God chooses people to entrust Himself and His Word to, and they prove to be faithless, does their sin and failings mean that God isn't faithful? Does it mean that God failed? Does it mean that God was wrong to choose them? That's a just question, right? Let's push on. The answer to that question is, by no means. Let God be true though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is the pivot point of this passage. That was alliteration, by the way. Pivot point passage. That's a speaking. See, you use that tool to get people's attention. They'll remember pivot point passage. Verse 4, pivot point of the passage. Write that down. By no means. Had God failed... Has God failed? Is He unfaithful? Paul starts verse 4 with a very strong negative interjection. I'm just throwing out all these grammar terms this morning, by the way. We've covered conjunctions. We've covered alliteration. Now we're talking about what? Interjections. I could sing that song too. By no means, that word here infers the thought... May that thought never come into being in your mind or anyone else's mind anywhere ever. John MacArthur says that it means no, 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 no way. May it never be. Nay, it can never be. All that to say, Paul's really going to great lengths in these three little words, which is two Greek words, to say, don't even ever let it enter your mind that that could be a possibility. What? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. No, 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 no way. May it never be, nay, can it ever be. Has God failed? Or is God unfaithful if some of the people He entrusted Himself to proved to be unfaithful? May it never be, and it can never be that God is unfaithful. And I want you to grab a hold of the imperative tone in this phrase. No. May it never be. And then Paul makes a monster statement. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now what's that mean? If every person ever is bad, wrong, unfaithful, a liar, God is true. God is right. God is faithful. So basically... If everybody defects from God, God will not change or fail. Let that sink in for a second. This equates to saying God's goodness, God's greatness, 
does not depend on man. You do not judge the goodness of God by looking at outward circumstances. You do not judge the goodness of God by looking at the sins of people. God's goodness is inherent to Him, and it does not reflect poorly upon Him if people are failing. If everybody defects, God will not change or fail. Who God is, what God does, does not center on man's response to Him. Think back to Adam and Eve. It would seem that God failed miserably when the first two people that He created chose sin over Him. Can you imagine being the devil and walking into God's presence? You're 0 for 2. You failed. They went my way, not your way. You got two people on the earth and they both picked me over you. Looks like you didn't do so well this time, God. But let me ask you a question. Did God fail when Adam and Eve chose sin? Was he wrong? Was he bad? Was he inadequate? Was he unholy? Was he unrighteous for creating people who would choose sin? Of course not. The Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. God's prophecy to the serpent that the woman's seed would crush his head was established before the serpent was ever created. Now, was redemption planned in all of that? Sure it was. And did that involve us? Sure it did. That's exactly what we need to see. Listen, church. The failings, the introduction of sin into the creation, the faithlessness of God's chosen people. Please listen to me. This is all God's doing. Stay with me. God was the divine initiator in it all. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That is huge. Don't ever cast your blame for sin upon God. And I know what you're thinking, but Jason, you just said God was the initiator of it all. Don't ever put your sin or the sin of the world at God's feet and say, this is your fault. We'll get to that in a second. Then... Paul refers to these Jewish scriptures to prove this point. What he quotes is, of course, significant. The statement is that you, talking to God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now that quote is from Psalm 51.4. Go to Psalm 51. As you're going there, let me give you a quick history of Psalm 51. Anybody familiar with Psalm 51? Does that ring a bell in your head? Good. You need to be familiar with Psalm 51. David wrote it. And you may have heard me mention David's name in the first few kings of Israel. As a matter of fact, you could say that David was the epitome of the king Jew. Okay? David was the second. Technically, he was the third king of Israel, but that guy in between Ishbosheth, he really didn't do much except run from David. <clears throat> David was the epitome of the king Jew. Just like Abraham was the picture of circumcision last week and incited pride in the Jews, David was the epitome of the greatness of the kingdom of Israel. And one of the main reasons he was such a big deal was because God made a significant deal with David, actually a covenant. Let me just read it. You don't have to turn there since you're in Psalm 51. Stay in Psalm 51. 
I want you to hear what God said about the covenant that He established with David. And this does apply to what we're talking about here. What was that? I don't know what that was. It's like I was following. In 2 Samuel 7, God says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is God talking, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. Now this sounds a lot like what he said to Abraham, doesn't it? I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I approached, appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Well, that's cool. His son's going to be king. That's not all. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Listen to this word forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Listen, last verse of this passage. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How long? Whose throne? David's, his house. God is saying somebody will sit on the throne of my people forever and that somebody will be your lineage. Now listen, two generations after David, Solomon, Rehoboam, the kingdom split. So the guy sitting on the throne of the northern ten kingdoms, which was the bigger chunk of Israel, wasn't a son of David. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and removed this southern kingdom from its place. So who was sitting on the throne of Israel then? Nobody. They had no king. So how could the king be on the throne forever? And how could that king be of David's lineage if there was no king and no kingdom? Seems problematic, doesn't it? Seems like God has failed, doesn't it? Somebody's going to be on the throne of this kingdom, my people, forever, and it's going to be from your lineage. Well, all of a sudden there's no king, no kingdom, no land, no nothing. Hmm. It's really important to see that God said that David's throne would be established forever. In other words, there would be a descendant of David on the king's throne forever. God blessed David with that promise. Now, how'd that affect David? That brings us to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a repentance psalm. It is David's repentance after he had... Now listen to this. King Jew, epitome of kingliness and Jewishness and God-chosenness. David was repenting after he had seen a woman on her roof. He took her and slept with her. He wound, she wound up pregnant while her husband was off at war. David had him killed in battle, then took the woman as his wife. So God sets up this beautiful promised covenant with David and David returns him in kind by saying, God, I'll live for you forever and I'll never mess up. No. David falls on his face and carries the nation of Israel onto his face with him. That's how David repaid the covenant that God had made with him. That's a good way to honor the covenant, isn't it? How dare David? And what was God thinking making a covenant with a man like that? Surely God made a mistake, right? Maybe He should have picked somebody else. Maybe He should have picked a different household. But that's just it. Listen, 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 listen. God's covenant is God's doing, and He will bring it to pass. In the psalm that is quoted in our Romans passage, David says, and again, if you're there, Psalm 51, let me read it from the beginning, and we'll see this quote in that. Start in verse 1 of Psalm 51. 
David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Which is the quote we have here. It's just worded a little different from the Hebrew to the Greek. David acknowledges his sins. He asks for forgiveness and says that his sin is ever before him. Then watch this. He says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which really seems kind of ludicrous to me, considering that he exploited a woman, he committed adultery, he had a man killed. I would think that he kind of sinned against those folks too, right? I would think that he kind of sinned against the nation by being an unrighteous king. But David confesses that ultimately his sins were against God. All of his sins were an affront to God. And then he caps it with the quote we see in Romans here, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Recognizing sin for what it is, David says, you are right to judge me for my sin. And God does. Remember He said in the covenant, when you and your sons disobey me, I will discipline you. Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with and whom he took as his wife after having her husband killed, had the baby that she was pregnant with by David. What happened to that baby? That baby died at God's word. God said, this child is going to die. The child from this union is going to die. He also said when he told David what happened and that he knew what happened, which was a year later, by the way. He also said that the sword would never depart from David and his descendants. Now, this is the same David that he made a covenant with, saying, your throne's forever. Here he says, so is discipline. So is the sword. It's yours forever now because of your sin. But the covenant was not broken. Jesus would come later who was a physical descendant of David. He came from David's line. Actually, in both ways, you could work it out. to him. And guess who's going to reign forever? Jesus is going to reign forever. Jesus, the descendant of David, will sit upon a throne forever and rule the nations. So the covenant will be kept. The covenant will be fulfilled. Even in the face of base sin... God honors His covenant with David, and David says, God, you do what is right all the time in the face of my sin. So what's all that got to do with our passage? Now, what we're going to do is... Oh, i got to stay right here. We're going to read verses 5 through 8, and we're going to go through those together to finish out, and then we're going to look at application. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Look familiar. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now that seems to me like it doesn't apply to what we just talked about, but it does. Stay with me. We're actually almost done. So God is shown to be faithful in the midst of the Jews' unfaithfulness and in the midst of David's sins. Two groups who have God's choice on them. Surely their sins would disqualify them from God's favor, right? Seems like it doesn't. It seems like God is shown to be gracious and kind in the midst of their sin, doesn't it? It kind of seems like God just kind of pats them on the head and says, oh, it's okay, I love you anyways. And that's what people started saying when Paul was preaching grace and mercy. Follow their thought pattern. Verse 5 has Paul using a supposed speaker who says to Paul, well, if us being bad makes God look good, isn't God wrong to judge us and, judge us and hold us accountable for our sins? I mean, look, look at the Jews. Look at, look at the king Jew. They messed up bad. And God looks greatly forgiving upon them. 
So he would be wrong to judge sin if this is the case. If God looks at their sin and says, oh, it's okay, which he doesn't. Why would he judge me and why would I not be in his favor if I'm a sinner, which you've spent two and a half chapters establishing that I am? Paul seems to detest the thought so much he has to put a parenthetical statement in to make sure the readers know he is not speaking as himself. And that was back here. He says, I speak as in a human way. He just wants to make sure, please don't hear me saying that. This is what I think somebody would say to me. And then in verse 6, by no means. By no means, or like we saw before, no, 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 no way. May it never be, nay, can it ever be. Because, Paul says, if God doesn't judge sin, how can He judge the world? And let me tell you what, the Jews were pretty excited about God coming to judge the world. Because if He's going to judge the world, He's going to <gasps> emancipate them. He's going to bless them. So the Jews were all about God judging the world. So they were saying, surely God won't judge us. But then Paul says, but if He doesn't judge you, He also can't judge the world. And that's a problem, right? God would judge the world, they thought, but not them. He then goes on with his thought in verse 7 saying, why would God condemn me as a sinner if my sin just makes God look more gracious? And then in verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come, which is preposterous to Paul. But obviously people are saying that's what his gospel of grace teaches. They're claiming that Paul and his gospel, here's a good theological word, are antinomian. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N. Antinomian. They're saying that Paul is antinomian, which means no law. Anti means no Nomian means law. Remember Deuteronomy we talked about last week? Deuteronomy. Deutero is second. Nomi is law. Deuteronomy was a second giving of the law. Here, antinomian. Anti. I'm sorry. If you live in the holler, it's anti. Antinomian. If you're more cultured, it's antinomian. So antinomian. They're saying that Paul is antinomian. And Paul says that's slander. That's a lie. A misrepresentation of what he has been commissioned by Jesus himself to teach and preach. And then Paul ends the segment by saying that those who accuse him of preaching no law deserve the condemnation that they will get. Hmm. Now, through this weird snaking passage that doesn't seem to tie in real well together, and let me just... Let me just reiterate where we've been before we go to application. What advantage has the Jew? What value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Then being faithless, does that make God not faithful? May it never be. Let God be true, though everybody's a liar. You're justified in your words, David said, and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, like the Jews, like King David... What shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory. So if when I lie, God looks glorious because He's showing me grace, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? There's really no such thing as sin because sin just makes God look good. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, I want us to see some things out of this. Keep in mind where we've been in Romans. Hi, I'm Paul. This is the gospel. Just shall live by faith. You're all sinners. But you're saying that my sin makes God look good because it's happened in the past, right? Paul says, may it never be. I want to see some application points as we close. First, do you see the value of God's Word? If the Jews had any value whatsoever, if they had any advantage whatsoever, the only thing that gave them an advantage was the fact that they had God's Word. If you're going to know God, you have to know Him through His Word. That is God's revelation of Himself. And the Jews had that until the time of Jesus. And then these apostles came and wrote down words in the New Testament. So now we have the Old and the New Testaments, which are the Word of God. And get this, listen to this. At least 2,600 times. At least 2,600 times. 
the Bible claims to be the Word of God. 66 books, 2,600 times at least those 66 books claim this is God's Word. And we towed it around on electronic devices. We towed it around in our back pocket. We towed it around in our satchels, in our bags. We leave it at home because it's not that important. We call it legalism to sit down and read it. If you are going to know God, you have to know, you have to read, you have to study, you have to meditate on, you have to master the Word of God. It's the only advantage that the Jews had. That's the first application point. Second, do you see the seriousness of sin? You're like, you are like a broken record. You say this all the time. Good. Your sin, your being a sinner, has put you not in an advantage, but at a disadvantage. You committing sins, even as a Christian, even as a believer, does not glorify God. These people were saying, oh, well, my sin... Makes God look good because He can forgive me for more things. It's kind of like saying, I'll buy a whole bunch of stuff and get crazy in debt so that my bankruptcy ruling looks all the better. They can forgive me for $6 million worth of debt, not 6000 That's foolishness. Let's sin so that grace can abound. Now, we're going to deal with that later in Romans. I want you to hear something today. Saved person and unsaved person, your sin puts you in grave disadvantage toward God. If you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ, God has dealt with your sins. They are wiped away. But you committing sins seriously impairs your ability to enjoy the blessings of God. And if you're not a believer in your sinning, you are piling up condemnation for the day of judgment. And it is a big deal. That click on the computer that nobody else sees is a big deal. That little decimal point that you move over on your taxes is a big deal. That thought that you harbor in your mind and in your heart about your spouse is a big deal. I can never say, I can never say it's unfair of God for Him to allow me to be treated unfairly by people. Why? Because of my sin. I can never say it's unfair of God for Him to allow me to be treated unfairly by people because I'm a sinner. As a believer, I'm a sinner. And who do I interact with every day? I interact with a bunch of sinners and a bunch of forgiven people who act like sinners sometimes. And according to our passage here, that sin makes it perfectly all right. It makes it perfect. My sin, your sin, our sin, our collective sin, the fact that everybody in the world who ever lived after Adam and Eve, who introduced sin into the world, it would be perfectly all right for God to let me, to let you, to let us die in our sins and suffer in hell for eternity. It would be perfectly all right for God to do that. He would be just if everybody who ever lived was sent to hell for their sin. Because sin is a big deal. And then, do you want to blame God for your sin? Really? Well, God, you <laughs> made me this way. And I'm not talking about one group of people. 
I'm talking about us. Because that's what's going on here. God, you made me this way. And really, it's better if I sin because it makes you look better. No. We all know that wrong is wrong. Everybody. We established that back in chapter 1, chapter 2. And you are not entitled to even one sin. Not one. It's not okay. And I think that's where we drift off to in our sin. We think, well, this is just who I am. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about an article I read this week. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. This article published by Salon, which is a pretty big group of people, pretty big liberal group of people, published this article. This guy who said, I am a pedophile. That's who I am. It's what I struggle with. And it's just who I am. And I hope that this article gives other people the courage to step up and say, yep, this is just who I am. I struggle with the same thing. And it's his way of saying, it's all right, it's who I am. And you know what his statement was in that really just floored me? The brain will not be told no, is what he said. The brain wants what it wants and it will not be told no. Now we can look at that and be disgusted by that. I want you to look at your sin and put it in the same class. You say, but it's not the same class. It is still sin. And we justify it by saying, that's just who I am. This is how God made me. This is God's fault. I was born into sin. I don't have a choice. It's not true. You can't help it by the power of God. It's not unjust for God to judge the world as disgusted as the world is by that thought. Sin has to be judged. Sin is a big deal. And salvation is being saved from the wrath that is to come upon sin. The Word of God is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Thirdly and finally, do you see the value of being in covenant with God? You have done everything possible to disqualify yourself from God's grace. You, I, we have done everything possible to make Him turn His face away and punish us for eternity. But He will not break His covenant, even in the face of our many, many, many sins. He should. Because we don't make Him look glorious when we, when we sin. We make Him look like a failure when we sin. On account of you, Paul said early in Romans, because of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That's who you are. That's what your sin does. But God has established an eternal covenant with you and with me through the death of His Son. And He has invited us in and He says, If you are a sinner, come and I will make your sins as white as snow. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow because of what I have done. God says, not Jason. I can make it right, God says, but only He can make it right. Side note, what about these Jews? Did God break His covenant with them by going to the Gentiles and forsaking them? We're going to address that when we get to Romans 9-11. through 11. And let me tell you what, remember back in the introductory message of Romans, we talked about the guy flying off the skateboard and hitting his face on the rock. Anybody remember that? And what I said in that message was, you're going to come up against a God in the book of Romans who's not going to move when you run into Him. There's some of that here. There's a whole lot of that in Romans 9-11. through And part of what Romans 9-11 through says is that all Israel will be saved. Now we could get end time stuff and get into eschatological implications of that, which means end times. But their faithlessness does not nullify the covenant of God. So that's a side note. 
Right now, we are being used to move them to jealousy, Paul will say later. Zechariah says that all Israel will be saved, that they will look on Him whom they have pierced, and they will believe. But what does that mean for us? Listen. Please listen to me. When it looks like men are failing, God is working. When it looks like our plans are being thwarted, God is winning. In the midst of sin, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of what looks like failure, God is working all things together for our good and for His glory. Please take heart, church, individually, corporately. Please take heart knowing that God will not, no, God cannot fail. Philippians 1.6 He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it at the day of Christ Jesus. You say, but I'm a mess. Yeah, me too. You look around and you say, we're a mess. Yeah, we are. And in the midst of it all, God is winning. God's will is being accomplished. Get your eyes off of your circumstance and get them fixed on the one who is seated on the throne who has established this covenant with you and said, I will perfect you. I will use you, church, to show my manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities throughout all time. And put your faith in Him, not in people, some trust in chariots, some in horses, Psalm 20 says, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. He cannot fail. His Word tells us that. Our consciences tell us that when we sin. And He has established, listen, in the midst of what looks like failure, He has established His covenant with us. He has done that. And He who called you is faithful, and He will bring it to pass. Praise Him for His goodness and His faithfulness and the covenant that He has established with us through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, let every man be found a liar, but you be true that you may be justified in your words, God, and prevail when you are judged. May we see the advantage that we have through the Word of God. May we see the seriousness of our sins. And may we see the abounding, beautiful power of your covenant that reminds us that you will never leave us nor forsake us as your people. And we sang this morning, You are glorious. You are victorious. Yes, even in my life. God, I praise You this morning that You cannot fail. And You are pleased. You are pleased to show Your wisdom through our foolishness. Our foolishness is not okay but your purposes are not thwarted by it. So as the nations rage, and as you laugh in their face, God, may we rest in your ability to do what we cannot do. God, I am thankful for you. I praise you and I honor you and I glorify you this morning for being God far above yet within it all. I thank you that Jesus Christ reigns and will forever that covenant will never be broken because of your faithfulness. And we praise you for it this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to continue something that we started Wednesday night. I'd like you to stand and as we dismiss, I do like the thought of pronouncing this benediction over you, which I think is just so powerful, and I think it fits in so well 
with what we just talked about. Listen, church, individually and corporately. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.